Welcome to Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. I'm Connie Thiessen. The Canadian Journalism Foundation annually recognizes an individual who has made an outstanding lifetime contribution to journalism in Canada. This year's honoree is Dan David. Hailing from Ganasatage, among other achievements, David was the founding news director of APTN, has worked across the country with CBC Radio and Television, and has trained journalists abroad in Indonesia, Azerbaijan, and post-apartheid South Africa. On this episode of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, we welcome Dan David to talk about his journalism journey, why the Oka crisis was a personal turning point, and inspiring the next generation of Indigenous journalists. My name is Tayurnunote uh, uh, Daniel David. I'm Mohawk. I'm from Ganesadagi, which is in southern Quebec, just west of Montreal. And uh, I think I've always wanted to be a journalist. I remember in high school taking a current events course, reading newspapers like the Montreal Star, which doesn't exist anymore, and the Montreal Gazette, which was given free to our classes, and we used to sit around talking. And I just fell in love with the idea of becoming a journalist at that time. But I was uh, steered away from uh, my uh, dream of going to Carlton or Concordia or Ryerson by Indian Affairs, who wanted me to become a, an auto mechanic, a bricklayer, construction, something or other. That's the way that we were usually dealt with by the Department of Indian Affairs. You know, women went into homemaking and men went into the trades. And uh, you were discouraged from becoming an academic or you know, going into journalism. So I uh, kicked around various jobs, construction, tree companies, went to the States, worked the same down there, dug ditches, was a garbage man, painted houses, cleaned pools. And then slowly I started to uh, get back into communications, taking photography courses. And then eventually, you know, somebody reminded me, hey, didn't you want to be a journalist 10 years ago? And I said, yeah. And luckily, about the same time, I was changing jobs, leaving federal civil service in Ottawa and looking for a different life. And this ad popped up for a special one-year program in journalism, the program in journalism for Native people at the University of Western Ontario. And that's all she wrote. So how did you get your break? And what was it about pursuing the field that made you want to persevere? Uh, I got snapped up uh, right away, even before the graduation ceremony at Western, by uh, CBC Radio in Whitehorse. And so I, uh, they sent me a ticket. And next thing I know, I'm showing up there with shorts and a Hawaiian shirt in the middle of <laughs> the late winter in Whitehorse. I think uh, why I stuck around so much was because I, I, much as I found it to be a very hard job to do at first I love to tell stories and I found that journalism was talking about people's lives people's stories people's uh, tragedies their their everything everything about people's lives just fascinated me and so I wanted to become a journalist at the beginning and this allowed me to do it when I was up there and I worked with some really good people up in Whitehorse who taught me a lot about 
how to do daily journalism, how to meet deadlines, how to uh, talk to people, interview people, and get the most out of people. And from there on, I just, you know, it, it just fanned the flames and I took off. I've heard you described as the country's first Native affairs reporter. No, no, that's not true. I mean, I remember there was a guy who worked at uh, Canadian Press. I can't remember him. But he was uh, he was the only person I knew who at a mainstream news organization who actually had the so-called native beat. There was another person at Globe and Mail by the name of Rudy Platil. He impressed me because he was doing all these stories. He took this cross-country trip, apparently, and wound up on a couple of reserves here and there across the West. And he came back to Toronto with all these great story ideas and just convinced his bosses that he wanted to continue that kind of work. And that's where I ran across him. And he inspired me again to get back into it. Because you see, I didn't want to be a native journalist. I felt that it was like a pigeonhole. It would be like a token. And so I wanted to be a real journalist, which meant I wanted to cover labor, health, politics, and all the rest of it. I, I really resisted becoming the native reporter for such a long time. So I know as part of your time at CBC, you went over to South Africa as a contingent that helped evolve the South African Broadcasting Corporation from state-run to a public broadcaster. Did your experiences here in Canada facing discrimination inform your experience in South Africa? And vice versa. Exactly. Oh, it was a long trip. It was a long, strange trip. I, eventually, I did become the native, the national native affairs reporter across Canada and at CBC Radio. And so I did become a one-person program. They had, uh, CBC killed the program called Our Native Land after 25 years. And Our Native Land was a, a one-hour show and then a half-hour show every Friday and then Saturday and then Sunday. Uh, but basically, it was our window to the indigenous world across Canada. And they did a lot of uh, stories about politics, not just uh, politics on the Hill, but also politics with the indigenous organizations, explaining what the Inuit were doing, what the Métis and non-status were doing, and what you know the status Indian organizations were all up to. So it was uh, really informative. And people in the know who had that kind of interest, and a lot of the federal government did, you know, they, they were glued to their... Uh, to their radio sets each night, every time that it uh, appeared. And uh, when they killed it, I became the Native Affairs Program in Toronto for uh, all of the uh, local radio shows. So I would produce these stories and it would get out on the wires and get sent to the morning, the, after the noon show and the afternoon rolling home show at CBC stations across the country. I, I loved that job, but I, I realized that at some point I, I had to get out and, and just do something else. And in the meantime, I had uh, a little thing called the Oka Crisis come in into my uh, purview. After I left CBC Radio, I wound up in a little community north of Ottawa called Gitska and Zibi or Manawaki. And um, uh, I was listening to the radio one morning and getting phone calls late at night or early in the morning that something was brewing, something was going to happen. And then one morning, all hell broke loose. A lot of shooting over the radio at around 6.30, 7 o'clock in the morning. There was a raid. Uh, Mohawk warriors were there. My family was all over the place here at Kanesadaka. And um, 
next thing you know, I'm heading down, speeding there with a, a tape recorder and some spare clothes and a notebook, uh, trying to get into the community and uh, making my way in. And I spent the summer working as a food smuggler, uh, bringing in food and medicine and working with human rights groups documenting abuses and violations. And after that, I got this chance to uh, go to South Africa. So it was a lot of things happening all at the same time almost, where one thing after another uh, kind of really, first of all, shocked me out of my complacency, where I thought that, you know, I believe this myth about Canada and then going to South Africa and having a lot of my illusions kind of blown away, not just about Canada, but about societies in general, about the way that uh, uh, Indigenous people all over the world were treated. The CBC project really kicked off kind of a love affair with that country. Oh, yeah. I mean, uh, people talk about uh, getting the bug, you know, the Africa bug. When you go to Africa, there's so many... I mean, fantastic stories, so many fantastic people and the societies, the cultures, the languages, the food, the, you know, it, it's just people don't seem to, at least to me, seem to appreciate how, how beautiful Africa is. I think they think about wildlife and, you know, lions and elephants, and, and, and but they don't look at the people so much and the people are just absolutely amazing, you know. Uh, you can use words like resilience and 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 generosity, and that would only be touching the surface, just barely t scratching. And uh, I just fell in love with the people. You know, the, there were so many things that we had in common in our life experiences, and also just their their cultures, their societies were fascinating. And their rituals, their ceremonies, it was fantastic. It was a great education, but. You know, I, I saw a lot more than just the wildlife while I was there. So it was after that that you went on to become the first head of news at APTN. Did all that experience abroad inform how you went about building that initial news team? Yeah, I, I wrote about it once. I, I talked about going to uh, Durban on a training program because while my I used to go back almost every summer, I was either working at TVO or working at... Vision Television, then I got a job teaching at Ryerson and journalism. And during the summertime, I would go down to South Africa again and uh, work at uh, the South African Broadcast Training. People there about, uh, you know, television journalism, democratic journalism, and that was fun. Uh, but eventually I made a decision to go there and take a job at something called the Institute for the Advancement of Journalism. So I moved to South Africa for a while, and it was uh, really instructive to get out of just one aspect of journalism. It allowed me to get into the townships and do some training in places like Soweto and uh, Alexandra and other places that had amazing people trying to do amazing things, trying to community radio, community television, but on one trip, I went to Durban, and it was to work with the uh, mainstream newspapers there. And I started to wonder, like, what they were doing. Like, what did they do before apartheid fell, before democracy came into the country, before 93? And what did they do afterwards? How did they change? And what I found was with the newspapers, before they were looking at a slim 
a part of the population, which would probably be about the top 10%. These were the business people, you know, the elite, the academics, and most of their money advertising was really aimed at the people with, you know, the pockets to uh, be able to, you know, spend on cars, uh, furniture, uh, vacations. Afterwards, I expected that there would be a change after apartheid fell. I, I I thought that they would be a lot more democratic in their journalism. I thought they would get a lot more into the communities, into the, the black and brown communities out there and start looking at the townships and telling stories from their perspectives. But no, uh, what I found was they they changed the management. They changed the color of the newsroom with a lot more black reporters, but their journalism didn't really change very much. And that was instructive because I really thought that once you got rid of apartheid, then you would have, you know, a whole change in their perspective as journalists. And that really instructed me when I came back to Canada. And uh, APTN was crazy enough to hire me as uh, the very first news director. So I had this this idea that somehow we had to change the way that we did our journalism here as well. Not because there was any kind of regime change, but because we, as uh, as Indigenous journalists, had to recognize that we had a very different perspective than the mainstream. So we had to, we really had to change the way that we looked at uh, the way that we did journalism about for and about indigenous peoples, you know, we couldn't just look at it in the same old way that had been done before, which is looking at indigenous peoples as as subjects to be studied in some kind of a social science experiment, but really look at it from their perspective. Look at Canada through their eyes. Look at their own communities through their eyes, as opposed to, you know, coming in from the outside and helicoptering into indigenous communities and and doing yet another tragedy. Or as another journalist says, you know, the four Ds where indigenous people are either uh, drumming, dancing, drunk or dead. So we had to really look at getting into the communities and understanding what their issues were from their perspective. We had to change the way that we did journalism. That's what South Africa taught me. Within mainstream media outlets, there have been a lot of policies instituted to try and bring forward some of those diverse community perspectives. Do you think those policies are working? I've got a long experience with that because I remember going to conferences in the late 70s, early 80s in Toronto, where the federal government put on these great big things on diversity and employment equity. And, you know, listening to all the uh, pat phrases and, and solemn promises by, you know, organizations like the CBC, CTV, and, you know, Globe and Mail, et cetera, et cetera. And I didn't see very much progress. And I think that for the longest time, I wasn't sure that anything would change with the mainstream. I actually became part of one of those programs. It was called the Visible Minorities Program, where the CBC put out this call for applications. So something like 700 you know, people of color, uh, black, brown, Asian people, people who were Indo-Canadian, South Asian, indigenous people, etc. We all applied for these positions. And out of the 700, they picked seven of us, which I called the 1% solution. And uh, we were supposed to bring the color into Canadian television news, which 
you know, was very strange. So we were sent after training to become television journalists. We were sent by the CBC into various regions and local stations. I wound up in Regina for a while and other people went to Edmonton, stayed in Toronto, went to St. John's, all across the country. I think I was the only one that actually stuck around. No, two of us actually stuck around. Uh, one person had a show already out in Vancouver. His name was Paul Wynn. Uh, Deepa Mehta went on to produce uh, Oscar-winning movies. Claire Preto was a documentary producer in Toronto. But otherwise, it was George Boyd and me. George Boyd was a morning host on uh, Newsworld from Halifax, and I was just this local reporter out in Regina, and then afterwards moving down to Toronto. Did we make a change? I don't know. To tell you the truth, I don't think that we ever achieved what we wanted which was to encourage, to keep the door open for other Indigenous people coming in, for other Blacks, other Browns, you know, other people of other races, other communities, to keep the door open. I, 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 don't, I don't think that worked. We never achieved any kind of uh, critical mass to make any kind of a change that way. I think that change uh, happened from the outside. And I think that that was because uh, the Canadian media, the mainstream media, uh, was falling behind. I think that uh, what uh, they often accuse politicians of, of following the public as opposed to leading it, uh, they were guilty of. I think that Canada was changing. Its perplexion was changing. Its politics were changing. And uh, they were slow to pick up on the changes going on in Canadian society. I think now they're catching up but only catching up, and uh, and that's not because of anything that they did. I think it's they've been forced to by, by economics, by the change of uh, the marketplace, but I don't think we had anything to do with it. How do you think we inspire the next generation of Indigenous or BIPOC journalists? I think about, you know, the, the fact that it's a very unfriendly time for media, probably the most unfriendly in the last half century, there's long hours, there's low pay. And, you know, how do you ask young journalists to come into the field amidst all of this? I just had a long conversation with one of my uh, ex-producers. Uh, uh, she was in radio. Now she's still working for CBC Radio News in Toronto. We talked about this and she says that it's really hard for the people who are there having to do two or three jobs, lack of resources, working for you know various platforms, how do you expect people to come in when everybody's hanging on to their jobs by fingernails because of all the cutbacks and and you know the the changing economics of the business, uh, layoffs, shutdowns in the newspaper industry, radio programs, radio stations are are also you know just as badly hit. I don't know. The only thing that I I do know is that uh, with APTN. You know, there is a shining light among the indigenous communities, you know, that here are opportunities for jobs, for training, and as a stepping stone into the mainstream. Anything like that is, that's tangible, that's a tangible opportunity to offer people. That's something worthwhile. That's something that inspires them. For people who are not, who are coming through journalism school, I don't think that right now that there's a... Um, a lot that you can do the way that journalism schools are, are structured. I know that uh, Ryerson 
I used to complain about the, the way that we taught students at Ryerson, that we were 10 years behind behind technology at the time, that we were working with uh, old equipment, trying to teach students uh, using old methods for a, a changed environment. It was already digital out there, and we were still working with uh, videotape. I think that today it's even worse because I think that people are training people for a workplace and for opportunities that don't exist anymore. And I don't think that really uh, taking a look at what the workplace, what uh, the industry is doing today and, and addressing that and trying to tailor the programs, the curriculum to be able to be ahead of the curve as opposed to constantly trying to play catch up. Yes. Uh, I don't know if that answers your question, but I think that's that's my impression. I, th I think it's a very fair point. I, I think that was my experience, you know, 25 years ago, certainly. I'm, I'm glad you brought up Ryerson because you were former diversity chair at the School of Journalism. And it, I'm sure you know there's a lot of contention right now as to whether the Ryerson Review of Journalism should even be carrying the name of Edgerton Ryerson because of his role in shaping the residential school system. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, like a lot of people, I mean, when you talk about uh, names or you talk about statues, I, I don't believe that erasing that kind of stuff. I think that we need to educate people about that stuff. Let's keep the statues there, but let's add on the extra knowledge, you know, so that people know that, okay, he did this, he set up this education system in Ontario and used as a model for residential schools across Canada. Big deal. Okay, fine. But there are other things that are going on, and we can add that story to just, you know, instead of hailing him as some great big, uh, you know, uh, person in Canadian history, let's also add on all the bad stuff as well so that there's a, a, a more full picture of Egerton Ryerson and other people like that. You know, instead of tearing down the statues, let's add to the plaques that are there. So let's get to your Lifetime Achievement Award. A lot of people have mixed feelings when they receive these because they think it's kind of a capper on their career. But you've you've told me you're you've been on cloud nine for the last week. I have been because it's it's you know take a look at the list of people that are there. I mean some of my heroes in journalism. I mean Joe Schlesinger. How could I not you know be on cloud nine to be included in that same category? I, I wish I had met that man because uh, that's the kind of journalist that I wanted to be, that I think a lot of people in my age wanted to be as well because he was such a fantastic, hard-headed journalist. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I think that uh, tack ticking off that little category, yes, you're old as well, and, and what are you going to do now? Well, I want to write. I, like, I know my life isn't finished. I know it isn't over. I've, I beat cancer twice now. And I know that I have, even though, you know, these warning signs are coming up all the time, I have a lot I want to do. I want to write novels. I want to I want to write. I want to be my own boss. I, I want to pull back from the journalism part and get into the nonfiction or the fiction part of it. I want to really stretch my muscles as a writer, and, you know, instead of constantly getting pulled back into journalism, I want to get into writing, you know, and become a real writer. Do you have any parting thoughts? I think that uh, we've come a long way um, as a country. We have a long way to go. But I think that the wake-up call is already there. It's already been sounded. Uh, a lot of people are hearing it. 
a lot of people are also resentful and trying to resist change. And I think that that's, that's so sad. The people who accept change, the people who, uh, I used to advise my students of this too. You know, when things get really bad and everybody's hunkering down and trying to hide, I said, you stick your head up because you're the one that's going to be noticed. And I think that that's a pretty good time now when everybody is trying to hunker down and scared of change. Stand up and accept change. Adapt, because that's the only way to survival. Congratulations again on your award, Dan. I think you've earned it. Oh, I hope I have. <laughs> Thank you. Our thanks to Dan David. He'll be honored at the virtual CJF Awards ceremony on June 9th. Learn more about how to tune in on our podcast landing page at broadcastdialogue.com. For Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast, I'm Connie Teeson. Broadcast Dialogue. For more information about the podcast or to receive exclusive access to our weekly briefing about the Canadian media industry, visit us at broadcastdialogue.com. Don't forget to like us on Facebook, connect with us on LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter and SoundCloud. looking to make the most out of this life and optimize your personal wellness then check out the natural man podcast join me host mike c as we explore all areas of human wellness physical mental and emotional learn strategies to optimize your own well-being and be in the driver's seat of your own health remember your doctor works for you learn biohacks neurohacks ways to improve sleep and ways to optimize your body and your mind. Check us out on Apple, Spotify, the Fountain app, and at naturalmanpodcast.com.